Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and our guest today is Dr. Dina Esfandiari, senior advisor in the Middle East and North Africa Department of the International Crisis Group. Dina has held research positions at the Century Foundation, the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and the International Institute for Strategic Studies, the IISS, where we were colleagues. Dina received a PhD from the War Studies Department at King's College and has published widely on Iran and the region, including as co-author of Triple Axis, Iran's Relations with Russia and China, and Living on the Edge, Iran and the Practice of Nuclear Hedging. Dina and I will be talking about what to expect from the latest round of U.S.-Iran indirect talks in Doha, Iran's policies in Iraq, Lebanon, and Yemen, and how Iran is managing its relationships with Russia and China following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. My conversation with Dr. Dina Esfandiari of the International Crisis Group begins now. Dina, welcome to On the Middle East. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Let's get right into it. Indirect talks have been taking place in Doha between the United States and Iran, mediated by the EU, facilitated by the government of Qatar, as uh, there's another push to try to finalize the U.S.-Iran nuclear deal or joint comprehensive plan of action. Expectations are guarded, but there is life after a three-month lull when many thought the deal was dead. What are the remaining issues to be settled, and how do you see the prospects for the JCPOA with the resumption of these talks? So I don't think the deal is dead, um, and hopefully it won't be anytime soon, Uh, but things don't look great right now. Yes, the talks happened in Doha. Yes, it was good that all parties came to the table. Um, All of that is welcome, but I think some differences still remain. Interestingly, it seems one of the main issues that's been a a big sticking point over the last little while, this um, Revolutionary Guards designation issue, seems to have been somewhat addressed. It's unclear in what way, um, uh, whether they're kicking the can down the road or whether they're going to find a a way around it, Um, but it does seem to have been uh, more or less dealt with. There, the, the issue that remains right now is um, some of the additional guarantees that uh, Iran is looking for from the U.S. on um, sanctions lifting, on uh, the U.S. Uh, guarantee to remain in the deal, um, all things that from a U.S. perspective are very, very difficult to, um, to, to give to the Iranians. So at the moment, there does seem to be a desire to continue talking. Um, diplomats in Doha have said that they're going to return to the negotiating table soon. Um, but I, I just, I'm not sure if the political will to really resolve the last remaining issues uh, is there. Let's talk about that political will from the Iranian side. How do you see the Iranian political and economic incentives in Tehran's return to the talks? 
do, do you believe that Raisi really wants a deal? And, and why is it so hard with the price of oil so high, which would be a windfall for Iran and get allow them to get the badly needed investment they need in their energy industry, in addition to the rise in exports and the revenues that would bring in? Why is it so hard for them to close the deal when the incentives seem to be a no-brainer? They do seem to be a no-brainer from our perspective, but from their perspective, it's difficult to sign back into, uh, come back into an agreement which risks once again being overturned in a couple of years' time with a potential change in the U.S. administration um, at the next presidential elections. So Iran is working on the assumption that that's what's going to happen, which means any benefits that it gets from going back into the deal now will be once again revoked um, in a few years' time. And so that makes it really difficult for Tehran to, to come back because it would only have this supposed windfall for a very short period of time. It would be very difficult to encourage businesses to once again go back into Iran when everybody is proceeding on the, on the basis that, that we're going to go through this entire game again um, in a couple of years' time. Uh, and, and then it also doesn't look good politically for Iran internally, right? So we've made yet another compromise to go back into an agreement, um, knowing that in a few years' time, it's likely that we're going to be right back where we are right now, um, where the pain, the economic pain, will once again be the same. So from our perspective, it still looks good. It's still worth it for Iran to rejoin the agreement because it would still give them two years of economic benefits. It would alleviate their situation right now um, quite a bit. But they're thinking about in, in two, three years time, what will it look like then? And, and the prospects aren't great. So I think that up until a few months ago, the Iranians actually were frankly quite dead set on returning to the deal. It was more a, a question of what could they do um, to make it acceptable on their end. I'd argue that over the course of the last few weeks, maybe the last couple of months, um, there seems to be a, a reassessment going on in Tehran about whether this is really worth it. Um, I don't think they've made the decision that no, it's not worth going back to the deal, and that's demonstrated by their willingness to, to keep returning to the negotiating table. But I do think that they're asking themselves the question, is this really worth it after all for us? Um, and do we really want to go, at, go, go through with this? How concerned is Iran about Israel-GCC normalization and the expansion of Israel's security and economic ties with the U.S. and the GCC? And do you think President Biden's upcoming visit to the region has also compelled Iran to return to the talks? So I think if you had asked me this question when normalization was first announced, the answer would have been very different to the answer that I'm giving you right now. Initially, um, when uh, the Emiratis and the Israelis announced their normalization, I think um, despite Emirati attempts to make sure this wasn't the, 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 the way the media portrayed it, it ultimately was portrayed as you know, two enemies getting together in order to protect themselves or defend themselves against Iran. And certainly that was the, um, the way that the Israelis kind of portrayed this, this initial uh, round of normalizations. From Tehran's perspective, this was amazing. It made them look strong. Um, it made them look like a real power in the region. And several Iranian officials came out and almost gleefully 
um, pointed to normalization as a, as a sign of Iranian might in the region. Um, and to be fair to them, they were also pretty skeptical of uh, how normalization would eventually go. They, I think, were very realistic about um, the economic part of normalization. What they didn't expect, I think, is the pace of um, military cooperation, potential coordination, and intelligence sharing between um, Israel and the GCC. Uh, the Emiratis have been very careful um, to also be as transparent as possible with the Iranians on this particular point. They are a little bit more nervous than the Israelis are about that, but they also crave Israeli technology um, in order to defend themselves from, uh, from, from threats, including Iran. And that aspect makes Iran a little bit nervous. Um, it makes it uneasy. Um, the, the normalization agreements have given Israel access to Persian Gulf waters. Um, it hasn't given Israel access to the UAE territory or waters for any kind of potential attack on Iran. And again, the UAE has been very clear to both Iran and Israel that that will never happen, um, or it won't happen at least for now. Um, but nevertheless, I think Iran is quite nervous um, about the military dimensions of normalization. It also is watching um, all of this uh, recent push for a potential Arab NATO, for a, a you know, coordinated air defense system in the, in the Middle East. Again, the Iranians are quite pragmatic. They're quite realistic. They're also very skeptical that the Arabs can work together to put something like that in place. But it does make them uneasy. It does make them nervous. I don't know how much it factors into their decision to return to the negotiating table. I think that for them, these are two different issues. Um, and what happens in the region has always, I mean, it was relatively interlinked with the JCPOA to begin with, but I think at the moment, given the, the long running stalemate that we've seen in the JCPOA, it does seem to be two different um, arenas for, for Tehran. So I don't know how much it impacts this decision to return to the negotiating table. I think that's more about whether Iran believes it's worth pursuing a return to the deal or not. Let's talk about some of the regional accounts. Uh, President Raisi said this week at a press conference with Iraqi Prime Minister Mustafa Al-Qadami, who was in Tehran, uh, Raisi said, and I'm quoting, uh, without a doubt, the continuation of this war is fruitless and will not result in anything but the suffering of the Yemeni people. So this war must be ended as soon as possible and the ceasefire can be a step towards resolving the issues. I've checked, that is the strongest statement by Raisi or any senior Iranian official in support of the ceasefire and in support of ending the war. Uh, how do you assess that statement? How do you see the progress in Yemen? And there has been progress now. We're going, we're entering perhaps the uh, third ceasefire that will come up for re renewal July 2nd. And put it in the context of Iraqi mediation on Iran, uh, Iran Saudi ties. Um, so, yes, I, I agree with you. There has been progress in Yemen. And yes, that is a fairly strong statement on Iran's part. But to be fair, it's, a, it's, a, it's easy for Iran to make such a strong statement, particularly in a place like Yemen, where it can also put up its hands and say, look, we can do what we can to sway the Houthis, 
Um, but ultimately, they're their own actor. They have their own grievances on the ground. So they might listen to us. And they might not listen to us. And ultimately, we can't do much about it. Um, it's useful to have the Iranian president come out and make um, such, a, such a strong statement in favor of ending the war in Yemen. But ultimately, I don't know if it changes um, a lot of what's happening on the ground. And on the ground, as you say, there is reason for optimism because, uh, because the truce has been extended. Um, we're hopeful that it may be extended again. The problem is it's a pretty delicate truce. Um, several of the confidence building measures have been put in place, largely uh, by the government, not by the Houthis. And the one um, kind of confidence building measure that the Houthis were supposed to put in place, which is reopening access to the city of Taiz, uh, well, they've dragged their feet in doing that. Um, and they're continuing to drag their feet. Uh, you know, they're, they're engaging in negotiations on it, but so far they haven't been really very forthcoming, which makes it difficult for the government to justify um, maintaining uh, their confidence building measures in place, um, like, you know, allowing ships to, to dock in Hodeida and, uh, and things like that. So it's a difficult situation. I think it's, I think the Iranians have tried to make it as clear as possible that um, they, there's only so much they can do in Yemen. Again, it's, a, it's pretty easy for the Iranians to say that. Um, and keep in mind that Yemen is absolutely not a priority issue for Iran like it is for Saudi Arabia. Uh, there cannot be a resolution to the conflict in Yemen without Iran being at the table. Um, but I think it's difficult to say that the Iranians would be the ones that are calling the shots. It really is a question of engaging um, with the Houthis and ensuring that they're on board uh, with, uh, with the ceasefire, um, sorry, with the truce uh, measures. Having said that, the dialogue between Iran and, and Saudi Arabia, I mean, it is definitely a positive step. It's definitely good for Yemen that it's happening. Um, it's also a, a difficult dialogue. Um, I think the Saudis in particular have become really quite frustrated at the pace of the talks. Um, they're frustrated that it's not really leading to anything. They're frustrated that the Iranians aren't doing more in Yemen. Um, and Iran uh, is, is a little bit annoyed because they're, they're thinking, well, you know, the Saudis are making such a huge ask of us. They're asking us to unilaterally stop arming the Houthis and to constrain and control this group. Uh, now, yes, potentially they could stop arming the Houthis, but that's definitely not uh, something that you give at the beginning of a dialogue with another country. It would perhaps be their trump card towards the end of the negotiations. Uh, so there's a timeline problem. And in terms of the influence they have over the Houthis, well, as I said earlier, it's, you know, it, it, they have influence. Yes, absolutely. But the problem is the Houthis also have their own local grievances and objectives um, and so uh, it, you know, it, it, they have in the past ignored what Tehran has wanted them to do. So there's only so much Iran can give in that dialogue. Um, I still think it's worth Iran and Saudi Arabia talking to each other. And clearly both countries seem to think that as well, uh, at least for now. But, um, but it is going to be a difficult dialogue uh, and, uh, and it's unclear how much Iran can really give on the one thing that Saudi Arabia wants from it, and that's Yemen. You mentioned Iraqi Prime Minister Mustafa al-Khadami and the role he's been playing in 
facilitating these Iran-Saudi talks. How is Iran looking at Iraq right now with its stalled government formation process? Um, I think Iran uh, shares some of the frustrations of the international community um, when it comes to Iraq, but um, it's also more patient and more understanding of Iraqi dynamics. It's uh, more confident of its position in Iraq. Um, Iran, uh, despite the ups and downs and how it's been viewed by Iraqis over the last few years, including you know, after 2019, the discontent in 2019, um, Iran believes that the ties between uh, itself and Iraq are multi-layered. I mean, they're, they're political, they're economic, they're ideological, they're religious. There are deep, deep family ties between the two countries. And so the, the, the way that the Iranian elite think about Iraq is, well, you know, we're going to go through periods of difficulties, we're going to go through ups and downs, but ultimately, um, you know, this is a country that, that is tied to us um, in many ways. And so there is a, there's, like I said, a sense of confidence about their ability to manage the difficulties um, that emerge out of Iraq. Now, they're also watching quite closely um, how some of the uh, Gulf Arab states are trying to be more involved in Iraq and how the Americans are pushing the Gulf Arab states to be a more constructive, particularly economic actor um, in Iraq. Uh, but even, even when the US is promoting this with its, uh, with its Gulf Arab partners, it's doing so not with a view to pushing Iran out because there's an understanding that that's unlikely to happen. It's more um, so that really the Gulf Arabs can be, can be uh, useful actors, can help Iraqis and can be an alternative player um, even though uh, they, I think, will never really have the opportunity to, to play on the same um, level as the Iranians do in Iraq. How is Iran looking at Lebanon? It, of course, has close ties with Hezbollah, but Lebanon is going through a major financial, economic, political crisis. How does it see the situation there, and how does it see its influence on, with an important ally? So again, it's it's Iran is is watching what's happening in in Lebanon quite carefully, obviously, um, but it has that same sense, perhaps misplaced, but at least that same sense of confidence that it has in Iraq um, about the ties between uh, the their two countries, about the constituency that it has in Lebanon, and about its ability. Uh, to manage, again, the ups and downs um, in their relationship, or let's say the ups and downs internally in Lebanon. Um, I was just in uh, Lebanon for, for a few days right after the elections, and we had gone to really talk to people across the political spectrum to, to get a sense of what they thought um, about the elections, about Iranian influence, um, and, and really all of it. And it was astonishing, really, to see that everybody welcomed the election results, including those like Hezbollah who had lost seats. And I think the explanation for that is, is pretty simple. Um, with the loss of their majority, Hezbollah stays um, in government, but is no longer responsible for the government not working uh, because, because it's no longer the majority actor. Um, and that, uh, from their perspective, is, is uh, somewhat of a win. Um, 
because it means that you know they, everybody, all the political actors in Lebanon are very much aware that uh, the next little while is definitely not going to get any better. Um, and I don't think anyone's preparing to help make it any better. And so it's much easier from Hezbollah's perspective and then by extension Iran's perspective if they don't have responsibility for this continuing downward spiral that Lebanon is on right now. So Iran, you know, is, is worried. I mean, they do not want, just like they don't want it in Iraq, in Lebanon, they don't want a repeat of 2019. Um, but they also trust, just like they trust the Hashid in, in Iraq, they trust Hezbollah to deal with their um, their constituency. They trust Hezbollah to manage the discontent. Uh, there's a good dialogue, obviously, between the two of them. Um, again, they don't expect Hezbollah to just follow um, uh, Iran's orders and advice. Uh, this is this is part of how Iran deals with its proxies, um, and and they firmly believe that you know Hezbollah, after all, is their crown jewel um, in their in their network network of proxies, right? So they firmly believe that Hezbollah can manage um, the the you know upcoming ups and downs that that Lebanon is going to live through. I think in this particular instance, perhaps uh, more so than in Iraq they're uh, perhaps a little bit too confident um, uh, about how things are going to turn out for them. But I think that for now, they're just quietly watching and just letting, letting things happen to see, to see where it will go. Dina, last question. How does Iran weigh the changed international environment? And here I'm referring, of course, to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the sanctions on Russia. Russia has been an important uh, partner for Iran. How does that factor into Tehran's calculations? And so, similarly, how do you see the future of Iran's relationship with China? Um, so I think the outbreak of the of the Ukraine conflict has been interesting for um, for Iran. Um, initially, uh, they thought it would be relatively easy for them to deal with because they would just sit on on Russia's side. Um, they would stand by their partner. Uh, and, and do it relatively vocally. It, they didn't think it would have too much of an impact on the Middle East. Um, and the one impact that, that it may have had uh, or that they were anticipating was the, the rising price of um, oil, which they thought could potentially be beneficial to them. The problem was that you know, for that to be beneficial to them, they would have had to, to rejoin the JCPOA pretty quickly, which um, obviously, as we mentioned, they haven't done yet. Um, and in addition to that, uh, they're now facing um, difficulties with regards to, to Russia because they're competing, or at least the Russians are now competing um, with Iran for the sale of oil to uh, the energy giant that is China. Uh, the Russians are also heavily discounting their oil and selling it to China, which means that China no longer needs um, as much of Iran's oil. So that's further squeezing Iran in a way that they weren't really, I think, anticipating. Um, the, so this, this yes, it, it certainly has implications for Iran. Um, it will strain Iran's relations uh, with Russia, perhaps, although we saw, I think it was yesterday, um, Iranian President uh, Raisi and President Putin uh, talking to each other at a, at a, a regional meeting uh, of, of countries. And so, uh, it may strain their relations, but to be fair, Iran's relations with Russia and China, in fact, have always gone through ups and downs. They've always had periods where they were strained, 
um, where uh, you know they disagreed on things, but all act, all three actors have been immensely pragmatic. They've been very good at compartmentalizing their relationship, um, and they continue to do that. Uh, and like I said, the same can be said of of, uh, of Iran's relations with China. There is there's no love lost between them. Um, it is a it's a it's a very transactional relationship. They have built up their ties over the course of the last you know, 10, 20 years, um, they don't really like each other. Um, they're they're uh, both quite racist towards one another. Um, uh, again, the same goes for the Russians. Um, the Iranians don't really like Chinese products. Um, they don't like dealing with the Chinese in, uh, in like economic or trade negotiations. They find them difficult to deal with. Um, but they continue to do so because they realize that both of these countries are two international giants that Iran needs in order to, um, you know, in order to have at least some kind of international uh, trade and, and some economic activity despite the sanctions that it's facing. Um, so Russia and China continue to be useful for Iran. I think Part of what drived Iran to, to do the JCPOA negotiations to begin with, even the first time around, was that it could open itself up um, to uh, Europe and perhaps even down the line to the US because um, it is a very Western looking country. But when that experience failed, I think Iran firmly decided that no matter what happens with Western actors, it has to keep Russia and China on its side, it has to continue dealing with them on a political, economic, and maybe even military level, um, and it just can't afford to, uh, to to give up its relationship with both giants. You know, this has been fantastic. Thank you for joining us today on, on the Middle East. Really enjoyed the conversation and hope we can do it again soon. Thank you so much for having me. We will return after this break. Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at Al Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell, I'm Al Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let Al Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to Al Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. Thanks to our guest today, Dr. Dina Esfendiari of the International Crisis Group, and our production team of Beowulf Rockland and Rosabel Hine of Two Squared Media Productions. We will be back next week. And if you haven't done so, please sign up for all three of our El Monitor podcasts at your favorite podcast platform. First, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel, whose guest this month is renowned Israeli French artist and playwright Amos Gatai. On Israel with Ben Caspin, Ben this week speaks with Gil Messing, the chief of staff and head of global corporate communications 
at the Israeli tech company Checkpoint, and they are talking about how Israel is working to thwart Iranian cyber attacks. And of course, this podcast on the Middle East, where next week Amber and Zaman will be here with another decision maker or thought leader in the region. Thank you all for listening, and please keep up with all of the news and trends in the Middle East at lmonitor.com.